Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16, if you will. <clears throat> Going to take a look this morning at, <clears throat> excuse me, at God's provision for the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> and more specifically, we are going to consider two aspects, or actually technically one aspect, uh, two goats that were involved in the ceremonies on the Day of Atonement. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16, <clears throat> and we will begin in verse 5. And he, that is Moses, or Aaron, excuse me, Aaron, shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness." And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, <clears throat> which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, <clears throat> and bring it inside the veil." <clears throat> And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. <clears throat> he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. <clears throat> then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it <clears throat> on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat 
Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. And he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. It's kind of a lengthy passage, a little bit confusing. We'll try to make sense of it, but first let's ask the Lord's help on that. Father, I pray that your spirit would be with us and that you would help us to clearly understand this really complex picture of what Jesus did, which helps us to understand in some small measure of how Jesus, in fact, is our scapegoat and our sacrificial offering. Just pray for these things to come clear to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this passage describes the Day of Atonement. These rituals were prescribed by God for the people of Israel, and they were to uh, observe it once a year. It's called Yom Kippur, as you know. And uh, Yom Kippur just finished recently. It was at the end of September, the 29 and 30 this year. So we have just come through Yom Kippur recently. Now, there were many sacrifices, and I use that in quotation marks, many rituals involved in the Day of Atonement. But effectively, everything that we just read here is one sacrifice. It is one sacrifice for atonement. And so it's very complicated, very uh, ornate ritual that is involved. And every element of this speaks to some aspect of the redemption work, thank you very much, of Jesus Christ. Now, we have several animals that we see being sacrificed here. We've got um, a bull and a ram and a couple of goats. I want to look specifically at the goats this morning because what intrigued me when I first started looking through this was why are there two goats? You only have one bull, one ram. Why two goats? And it occurred to me that the two goats actually are acting as one goat. So we're going to, they're two goats, but we're going to think of them as one because it's just one atonement. It's not two. And so in some way, the goats help us to understand some measure of what Jesus accomplished on the cross as our atonement. Before we can do that, however, we need to notice some important things in passing. And the first thing that we have to notice is that before any of this can take place, the high priest has to make atonement for his own sin. Notice in verse 11, it says, Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Uh, Moses is underscoring, actually God is underscoring for Moses, this is for himself. Your high priest is a sinner, and he can't do anything until he has made atonement for himself And if he doesn't do that first, all the rest of this Day of Atonement comes to nothing. Why is this? Well, obviously, the high priest was a sinner. He was a sinful man. Aaron was the high priest at this time. We know enough about Aaron to not need convincing that Aaron was born in sin, just like the rest of us are. Aaron was a sinner. And so he had to make atonement for his own sins. 
If he had entered into God's holy place, he would have been bringing with him sin. And it would have brought sin back into the tabernacle. One of the important things that we need to understand and is shown to us in this passage is that atonement pays for sin, but it does not remove sin. And this is a a very important concept as we go through this because one of the things that we're going to notice is that all of these initial offerings are for the tabernacle. Before we can even get down to the people of Israel, we have to start by making atonement for the tabernacle. The first sacrifices then are intended to restore God's glory. Take a look at verse 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains amongst them in the midst of their uncleanness. And later on in a further down verse, we also add in the uh, verse 20, we add in the altar. It's basically the entire temple, the entire tabernacle is defiled and needs to have atonement made for it. How can you do that with an inanimate object, with a building? Well, as you know, God cast Adam out of the Garden of Eden because God cannot tolerate presence uh, sin in his presence. And so Adam and Eve had to leave. We're going to look at that in a little bit. But at some point, God, from before the beginning of earth, God had decided, had determined that he was going to maintain fellowship with the human race, with the descendants of Adam. And so at some point in history, he had planned to make his dwelling amongst the people. But the problem is that Adam and Eve could not go back to God, and so for that to happen, God had to come to us. And God has always made the initiative. He's always the first one to reach out for reconciliation, as we'll see in the book of Genesis. And so God came to dwell amongst us because he wanted our fellowship. Now, as you know, God has chosen to use structures, tangible structures, quote unquote, to accomplish that. At this point in history, he's using the tabernacle to make his dwelling amongst the people. Later on in the history of Israel, he used the temple. But he uses a structure, some tangible thing in the world to make his presence known and to make his dwelling place among people. The problem is that tabernacle existed among people, right? I mean, if he's going to dwell among people, he's going to be dwelling among sin, And God's presence here is in the tabernacle, which means that it is surrounded by sinful human beings. Now, it's important for us to understand that when we talk about making atonement for the tabernacle, I'm not suggesting that God has been defiled by our sin, but I am suggesting that his dwelling place, his chosen structure, the tabernacle, has been defiled by the sin of the children of Israel. His dwelling place is amongst sinful people, and those sinful people corrupt and defile that dwelling place just by being there. Because we're sinners, we are born in sin through Adam. And so these blood sacrifices that we're seeing here 
in the atonement, the day of atonement, are intended to cleanse that defilement, to purify, to satisfy God's justice in judging sin and to restore his reputation, his glory in the world around him. That is, after all, the reason that God, one of the reasons that God chose to make his dwelling among people in the first place is so that he can make his presence available, not just to the Jews, but to the world around the Jews as well. None of this could happen until the high priest had atoned for his own sins simply because if he hadn't made atonement for his own sins, he would have simply been bringing sin into the high place, into the presence of God, and he would have died. He would have been struck dead. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. The second thing I want us to notice here is another very important point, which is it is the blood and only the blood that is making the atonement here. You'll notice in verse 12, we have several things. He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire, and his hands are full of sweet incense, uh, beaten fine. As you know, there are many other elements, many other things involved in the worship and rituals of the Old Testament law. There were various offerings, for example, grain offerings and uh, wheat offerings and so forth, and incense. But notice verse 13. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He is using incense and, and a censer with coals in it, but those are not part of the atonement. That's to keep him alive because the high priest is entering the presence of God. And so the incense is for him. It's for his own safety. It is not part of the atonement sacrifice. So the atonement here is the blood alone. We're going to look at this a little bit more in a moment, but I really want to underscore this. It is not the blood plus the incense. It's not blood plus anything else. And what we learn from this is that it is the blood of Jesus Christ alone which brings us atonement for sin. It is not the blood of Christ plus And yet mankind loves to do that. It's the blood of Christ plus my obedience. It's the blood of Christ plus my good works. The blood of Christ plus. It is not. It is the blood of Christ alone which brings us atonement. I was speaking recently to a person who is um, undoubtedly born again. I have no doubt of this person's salvation. But she has chosen to affiliate herself with the Catholic Church. Now, I am not here to bash on anybody, not here to denounce any other denominations. I'm just going to make a point about this person's understanding of salvation. Because in the course of our conversation, she said, if I ever make it to heaven, and I said, hold on right there. We've got a fundamental problem in your thinking. And I tried to explain to her that we are born again not through anything but the blood. And furthermore, once we are born again, it's forever. We don't lose our salvation when we sin. Thank the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. She did not understand this, that once you're born again into God's family, you are born again forever. You and I cannot change our DNA. I can't change who my parents were. 
nor can you. Once you're born to that family, once you're born to James Clifford's family, you're stuck. Amen. Amen. Once you're born again into the family of Jesus Christ, you are stuck too. You cannot ever change that spiritual DNA. It is eternal. But she thought that somehow her redemption was dependent upon the blood of Jesus Christ plus. And she had gotten it into her head that her salvation was dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ plus doing good works and living a good life. If I can just be good enough, I'll be worthy of eternal life. Now, people don't usually word it that way because when you do, you reveal the truth of what you're saying. It's pride. It's me. I bear a share in my salvation. So they don't add that part. They don't word it quite that way. But that is what that teaching implies, that somehow my good works are part of my salvation package. It is the blood of Jesus Christ alone which has brought us atonement. We do not lose that salvation when we sin. But notice that the atonement here in Leviticus has to be repeated annually, and that's because God's redeemed people do sin. And I deliberately said we don't lose our salvation when we sin, not if we sin, but when. Because God's people do sin, and God knows that, and that's why the atonement needs to be repeated every year. And this takes us to the scapegoat in verse 20. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Now, as I've said already, there are two parts to this atonement. There is the blood sacrifice, which we have already been considering. And that blood sacrifice satisfies God's justice, and it restores his glory in creation. But there is also the scapegoat. There's the second part to this atonement sacrifice. And this is the permanent removal of sin. Both parts are necessary, which is why there are two goats instead of one. They're equally important. You'll notice that it was done by lot, uh, chosen. That suggests that there is no one is slightly more important than the other. They are equal. The blood sacrifice and the removal of sin. And the reason for this is that simply paying for sin, making atonement for sin with blood, does not remove the sin. There's no remission of sins without the scapegoat. And so the sin is still in God's presence. As I said before, the problem is that God's tabernacle exists in the camp of sinful people. And the fact that sinful people are around it means that it's being defiled still because the sin is there. So the sin has to leave. And so what God does is he takes the sin of the people and he puts it on a goat and he casts the goat out of the camp so that the sin is gone, but the people get to remain in his presence. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. 
And we'll look at a very familiar passage. Turn back, please, to Genesis chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 6. You know this story, this tragic, horrible chapter in the Bible where Adam has eaten of the fruit. Well, okay, we'll pick up in verse 6. Adam has not eaten yet. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Stop there for a moment. Adam and Eve's first response to sin is shame. It says that they recognized that they were naked and they immediately attempted to cover their nakedness. Adam and Eve were concerned about their shame and their reproach. Notice verse 11, God has come to them and God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? You can read that question a couple ways, but listen to the inflection in my voice. This is one way you can read the question. Who told you that you were naked? One way of understanding God's question here, I just realized that I spoke on God's questions the other time I was here. I had not even remembered that. We probably looked at this then. One way of understanding God's question here is God is saying, why are you worrying about being naked? You're worried because you're naked? You were naked already. What's up with that? God is suggesting, I think, to Adam, your priorities are really wrong. You're worried about your shame, and you should be worried about my glory. And, of course, that is our, our own attitude, isn't it, as descendants of Adam. We're more worried about our own shame and our own nakedness than we are about the glory of God. So skim down to verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now this is the first animal sacrifice in the history of creation. God is the one who has made it with his own hands. Presumably God killed a sheep. We're not told what it was. It may even have been two in order to make two coverings of sheepskin for Adam and Eve. But here's what, uh, one of the things that I see in commentary frequently is God was covering their shame. And I think Leviticus is showing us something rather different. 
I think we see in Leviticus chapter 16 that God was actually not covering the shame of Adam and Eve. He was making atonement for his own glory. He was making atonement for their sin, but he was making atonement from the aspect of God's glory. Satisfying his justice and showing forth all creation that God always keeps his word. Because he had told Adam, this is what's going to happen if you eat that fruit. God always keeps his word. But remember, the full package of atonement has two aspects. There is the blood sacrifice, which makes atonement for sin, and there is the scapegoat, which removes sin. And what do we see here? We see the blood sacrifice, but there is no scapegoat. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man. A very significant element is missing here. The scapegoat. We have the sacrificial goat, but we don't have the scapegoat. Consequently, God says, you can't stay in my presence. I will not tolerate sin in my presence. And so Adam and Eve are the ones who are driven out from God's presence. That's what happens when you don't have the scapegoat. And that's why God made special allowance in Leviticus for there to be a scapegoat. It is not enough, says God, for your sins to be atoned and covered I want you in my presence, and you can't be here if your sin remains, as was the case with Adam and Eve. If God had made atonement for the tabernacle and even for the sins of the people, but had not driven the sins out of the camp, the people would have had to be driven out just like Adam and Eve, because God's presence dwelt in the camp of Israel in the tabernacle. In order to continue dwelling in the midst of the people, he had to remove their sins and cast the sins out of the camp so that the people could remain in his presence. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, verse 16. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. Now, it's important for us first to understand that this is why the tabernacle needs to be cleansed, why the tabernacle needs to have atonement made for it because of the uncleanness and because of their transgressions, and because of all their sins. It's an interesting three-part repetition. It's like God is saying to Moses, your sins are a mess. You've got so much wrong with your lives spiritually that you are unclean, and you have transgressions, and you have all these sins. God is saying to the Israelites, your lives are permeated with sin." Because you're descended from Adam. But then we go down to verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat 
and he shall confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins. Isn't that cool? There's that three-part list again. As God's, God is saying in verse 16, you're utterly corrupt. Your lives are utterly permeated with sin. And then he says, I'm going to take all of it. I'm going to take all your uncleanness and all your iniquities and all your transgressions and all your sins, everything, and put it all on the head of the goat. And then I'm going to kick the goat out of the camp. And he's never coming back. That's really cool. And and we could look more in detail here at how the tabernacle, every element of the tabernacle is clean. What I'm trying to suggest is that God's atonement pays for everything. Every sin from the past, every sin that you're going to commit today, and every sin in the future, it's all paid for by Jesus Christ. And it's not just paid for, it was all put on Jesus Christ. That's why it doesn't say he bore sin for us. What does it say? I heard somebody say it. He became sin. And God laid on him the iniquities of us all. That's right. He didn't bear our sins, he became sin. Because we are sin, or we were When we were under Adam, now we're born again, so we're a different creature. But the cool thing here is that in Leviticus, God is saying, I'm taking it all. And there is nothing that is omitted. This goes back to uh, the person that I was speaking about earlier. And it also takes us back to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. We mentioned that Aaron was a sinner, the high priest was a sinner, and he had to make atonement for his own sin. But obviously Jesus Christ, who is the final high priest, was not a sinner. And so he did not have to make atonement for his own sins. And therefore, his blood became the atonement for our sins permanently, forever. And notice in verse 15, it tells us that he is the mediator of a new covenant. There are many elements to the new covenant that we could touch on, but a couple that I think are worth mentioning. The first is that it is not an annual thing anymore. 
Because Jesus didn't have to pay for his own sins. All he was doing was paying for our sins and taking upon himself our sins and then taking it down into hell. My understanding of the eschatology behind the scenes is that when Jesus died, he went down into the depths of hell and he burst through the bars and he set the captives free and he ascended on high with captivity in his train. When Jesus died, he was the scapegoat and he took upon himself everything, all sin, all sin ever committed by anyone in the human race. And he didn't just leave the camp, he went down into hell and left it there. And when he ascended on high, the sin stayed in hell where it belongs. All our sin is gone. And the second thing about this new covenant that I find exciting is not just for the Jews anymore. It was just for the Israelites before because God made his dwelling with the Israelites that was with the, inside the camp of Israel. And he made a new deal and said it's for everybody now. It's not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. I mentioned before that God makes his dwelling place in temporal structures. First it was the tabernacle, as it is in Leviticus, and then it was the temple. What is it today? Who, what is the temple of God today? We are. He has made his dwelling in the world in us. We are the temple of God. This takes us to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, can never make those who approach perfect. For then they, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. <clears throat> the law can never make anyone perfect. Can never give anyone permission and access to approach God. Because just our mere presence in the presence of God defiles his glory. Go down to verse 14, still in Hebrews 10. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus' blood has done what bulls and goats could never do. You had to repeat that every year. But the blood of Jesus Christ has perfected us forever. And it is not something that we can ever lose. And this ties back again to this person that I was talking about before. It is the blood of Jesus Christ alone that sanctifies us and justifies us in the eyes of God, not the blood of Christ plus my good works. And thus Christ's blood is not good for just one year, Because if it was only good for one year, we would still be back under the law, which involved my works. And then I would be able to boast and say, yeah, it was his blood, but I also lived a good life. I did a lot of good works. And of course, we know what Paul says about that. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. If there was any element at all of my involvement in my 
salvation. I just lost atonement. There it is. How can I forget the word when it's at the center of the topic? If there was any element whatsoever of my effort involved in my atonement, I would bear maybe just a small share, but I'd still bear some share of the glory. And this takes us back once more to the element of the scapegoat. God provided the blood sacrifice for Adam and Eve, as we saw, but he did not provide the scapegoat. But Jesus did provide the scapegoat, the eternal scapegoat, who has carried away our sins forever. As I was doing some study for this passage, uh, I think it's in the uh, CHM book on the Pentateuch, the Macintosh book. I'm sure some of you have that and have read through it anyway. I think that was Macintosh who referred to it, but he said that in the Talmud there is a story. And so now being in the age of Google, I can check out whether that's true. And so I went online and in fact it really is. I found the quotation from the Talmud. The Talmud, as you probably know, is the Jewish book of commentary on scripture and on Hebrew traditions and so forth. And it's very old and held in high esteem by the Jews. Anyway, in the Talmud is this interesting story. Apparently, the Jews, when they would send out the scapegoat, they had developed a whole bunch of their own traditions which they associated with it, things they added to what God told them to do, as we love to do as human beings. Eve added to the word of God. That's where we get it from. And so when the scapegoat was going out, they had a tradition of jeering it and mocking it and hitting it with sticks and throwing things at it, which was a perfect picture of what they were going to do when the final scapegoat came. But another thing they did, which I found very interesting, apparently they tied a scarlet ribbon around the goat's neck. And apparently, according to other sources, they would take the scapegoat and not just lead it into the wilderness, but they'd throw it off a cliff to make sure it wasn't ever coming back. And where they threw it off the cliff, they would put a pole and a red ribbon, a scarlet ribbon. Okay, so then a year later, they come out again with the scapegoat, and they find that ribbon there, but now it has bleached white. And so this became a very long-standing tradition among the Jews that that was God's sign that he had indeed accepted the scapegoat on their behalf and their sins were gone and were not coming back. Kind of a cool tradition, okay? Here's what it says in the Talmud. For 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 30. No, A.D. 70. Sorry. Right, A.D. 70. But, Subtract 40 from that and you have A.D. 30. And what happened in A.D. 30, roughly? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay, just wanted to make that clear. So for over 40 years before the temple was destroyed, going back to A.D. 30, the crimson stripe did not turn white. And the doors of the temple's holy place swung open by themselves. That's in the Talmud. Isn't that cool? So if this is true, I guess it's true. I mean, the Jews are really good for recording things, and I trust their recordings. And so I guess this is true. Up until the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God would turn the ribbon white. 
Beginning with Jesus' sacrifice, he stopped turning the ribbon white. Why? Because that's gone. And the only sacrifice I will accept now, says God, is the one from my son. Because this is forever. And this is absolutely complete. All your sins, all your uncleannesses, all your transgressions, all on him and gone. And then, of course, the doors of the temple swing open. I can picture them trying to close these doors. Opens up again. Because when Jesus opened access into the Father, it can never, ever be shut again. Now, I've been saying and emphasizing how we have no part in our atonement. There is one element here, and this is another reason why I think the scapegoat is so important. Jesus' blood made atonement for every sin of every human being who ever did live, ever will live, ever lives today. But the scapegoat only took the sins of those who placed them on. That's where we have choice in the matter. My sins have been paid for, but I might choose to not put them on the head of the scapegoat. And it is that element where it is up to us to accept Jesus' atonement. It is that element where salvation is my choice. And I can choose to say, that's okay, scapegoat. I'll take care of my own sins. In which case, my sins have not been removed. They have not been sent out of the camp. So I cannot remain in the camp. So it's a choice. Either I put my sins on the scapegoat and it's cast out of the camp, or else, like Adam and Eve, I will be cast out of the presence of God. And I lost my place in my notes because I go so far afield all the time. So let's just go to the practical application. Oh, yes, verse 19. I love verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. We not only are permitted into the holiest of holies, we go in with boldness. Why? Because Jesus is already there. Jesus was there ahead of us. He's the one that burst open the doors. He rent the curtain. Jesus went in as the scapegoat who has been taken the sins to hell and left them there. And now we enter the presence of God with boldness. Skip down to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up, stir one another up in love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What does all of this mean for us in practical terms today? Well, first, verse 23 says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We need to hold firm to the conviction that our sins are gone. All of them, because the scapegoat took everything when he took it all away. 
We hold firm to that truth simply because it is so easy to forget sometimes. It's so easy to examine my life and see how far I fall short of God's word, God's commands, and to become all woebegone about what a sinner I am and how could God want me in his presence. And then I begin to say, if I ever make it to heaven. And when we go down that path, what are we doing? We're being just like Adam and we're focused on our own shame. And God said, your priorities are all wrong. Who told you that you were naked? That's not your problem. Your problem is to worry about the glory of God. What does God's word say? His sin, his atonement paid for every sin. It's all paid for. That is the glory of God. That is where we need to be focused. We hold fast to this conviction that Jesus has taken away all our sins, past, present, and future. And why has God done this? How do we know that he has done this? Verse 23 tells us. He promised. (laughs) And he who promised is faithful. That's all. That is the only basis I have to offer you for how I know that Jesus paid for my sins and for your sins. Because he promised and he who promised is faithful. And we put all our trust, all our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of God the Father. Because God always keeps his promises. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. That's why he made the animal sacrifice. It was for his glory to satisfy his justice and to prove to the world that he always keeps his promises. He who promised us is faithful. And then verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The first practical application is to hold fast to our conviction. The second is to stir up one another to love and good works. This is where the element of obedience does come in. I was talking about this topic at another place not too long ago, and a brother asked me about the passage in James where it says, faith without works is dead. And there is that element to our Christian walk, isn't there? There is an element of obedience, of doing what God has commanded us to do. It's just not about our eternal security. But what it is about is building up the body of Christ. And that is where we are called upon to obey the word of God. It's about examining ourselves, about taking stock of our lives and our testimony to the world around us. Because, again, we are the temple of of God, right? We are the structure through which God makes his dwelling place in the world and his purpose in doing that, one of them, as I said earlier, is to show the world that he is available. They have access to the presence of God. He has come to live amongst the descendants of Adam through us. And therefore, we examine ourselves to make sure that God's dwelling place is not being defiled for the glory of God. And finally, we do not do this alone. Verse 25, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This phrase, one another, is used throughout the New Testament. One of these days I'm going to do a study on that to see all the one another's 
It shows up everywhere in all the epistles, I think, certainly most of them. And the reason for that is that it is so important to the health of the body of Christ. That's 12.15, brother, I'm sorry. I said I'd be done before that. I didn't make it. He said you were all going to get up and leave at 12.15. It's critical to the body of Christ that we care for one another. That's why it's called the body, because your body parts look after one another. And this whole concept of one another is so important because it shows the world that we are, in fact, the body of Christ. And, of course, we also have the help of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus provided when he left for this very purpose. So what are the practical applications? Hold firm to the conviction Examine ourselves and love one another. Look out for one another. Why do we do this? Because Jesus Christ himself provided his own blood as the final sacrifice for sin. And he paid for the price. Uh, He paid the atonement price for sin. But he also became sin and took it away. It is because of the atonement of Jesus Christ that we are here this morning. It is because of the atonement of Jesus Christ that we have a one another. And that's what I would suggest for our practical application this morning is to hold firm to that conviction and to stir up one another to love and to good works. Let's close in prayer. Lord, there's so much involved in what... You did on the cross. It is beyond our comprehension. And this issue of remission of sins and atonement for sins by itself is hard to understand. But, Lord, we just praise you and we thank you that you did it. And, Lord, I thank you that you have made promises to us and that he who promised is faithful. We know that all of our walk with God and our ability to enter the presence of God is based upon the promises of God. And he who promised has promised also to complete that which he started. So I pray that your spirit would continue to grow us all to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.